You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Acts chapter 4 is our uh, focus uh, this morning. Uh, We have heard uh, Peter preach a sort of second Pentecost sermon. marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit and for the, the healing of the lame man who was praising and, and jumping up and down along with the uh, Christians that felt blessed by the Lord's uh, Spirit presence. And remember in chapter 3 of Acts, Peter is really preaching an Old Testament sermon, preaching from Isaiah 53, from Deuteronomy 18 from 2 Samuel 7. And uh, the emphasis in the early part of Acts is very much on the purest form of Judaism is is accepting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That uh, what has been revealed in the drama of salvation has come to a climax in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Everything that follows in Acts is based on the cross of Christ. And by cross, I mean resurrection and ascension, the passion of Christ, that whole uh, event. Well, Peter and John are dragged before the Sanhedrin. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, please guide our thinking now. We thank you, Lord, for your help in worship. We ask now for your help in understanding your word and its application to us, to our church, to our life together in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And chapter 4 begins with the priests and the captain, the temple of the guard, the Sadducees coming up and hauling Peter and John before them. And we're told they were greatly disturbed. Now the question for us uh, this morning, uh, at least as I'm framing this text, is uh, what makes a church great? What makes for a great church? Uh, Obviously, uh, we could spend profitably, and I would enjoy this, 10 or 15 minutes discussing this at the outset. Uh, That would lay an interesting groundwork for me uh, if we did that. I'm not going to do that, but you mentally uh, fill in the blanks. What, for you, makes for a great church? What makes a great church? Uh, In this passage, what I think I see in it is uh, three things that make for a great church. Now, keep in mind Acts 2, 42 through 47, where the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Keep those four hallmarks of a church in mind, because that to me is a definition of a great church too, where the believers are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the whole apostolic tradition, certainly including the Old Testament and the New, and to, uh, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. But here we get a, a complement to those four hallmarks. The church here in chapter 4 is characterized as having great boldness. And that boldness is particularly manifest in two ways, in preaching and in prayer. Now, I teach preaching, but I have a very broad view of preaching. 
When I think of preaching, I think of sharing the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And a text that for me kind of encompasses that preaching emphasis is Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him. We proclaim him. Admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present them mature in Christ Jesus. That kind of says it all. Uh, it can be said in many different ways. When Paul spoke to the Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's another way of saying the same thing. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. But what's characteristic in chapter 4 is preaching and prayer, and both of them are worked out with great boldness. The second aspect to a great church then I'll try to show these things to you in the passage, is great grace. Grace in getting along with one another and grace in sharing possessions and meeting human need. And that early church is characterized by both of those dynamics. There is a fellowship and a solidarity that uh, was relationally as opposed to institutionally uppermost in the minds of the people. They related to one another well, and they must have given great grace to each other for that life together. And the other aspect then is the spontaneous, generous, practical giving. And the third is great fear, great boldness, preaching and prayer, great grace in terms of fellowship and meeting needs, and then great fear. Uh, this passage ends with Ananias and Sapphira being taken out and buried for lying to the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's Holy Spirit applied church discipline in a very radical way. Uh, this did not characterize the life of the church obviously, because there's been tons of hypocrisy and duplicity, and we all could find times where we have participated in that ourselves. But this great fear is a fear of God, not a fear of man. So, you know, the boldness was preaching in prayer, and the grace was uh, fellowship and giving. And this third one is... Uh, a fear before God, but not people. And there's a kind of, um, there is a, against the authorities, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the high priests, all of these. So, okay, let's see it in the text. Uh, verse 2, the authorities of chapter 4, Acts 4, 2, they were greatly disturbed uh, there is a kind of accentuated extremism about the description in chapter 4 on both sides, the opposition as well as the church. They're greatly disturbed, the leadership, because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they seized Peter and John because it, it was evening. They put him in jail. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. There is 3,000 from Pentecost, 2,000 added to that. This proclamation is, being, uh, is in the court of the temple, Solomon's colonnade. That's where the Christians are gathering. 
they're gathering at the heart of Judaism, proclaiming the Jewish Messiah. In verse 5, the three generations of high priests call Peter and John. Into, and this is, you know, the names here are not just names on a page. They're representing the previous high priest, the present high priest, and the future high priest. And they, uh, they had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them, by what power or what name do you do this? And remember, we mentioned this last week, uh, that... There is a name theology that comes along here, that what is done in the name, and the name becomes a shorthand notation for all that uh, is fulfilled in Christ. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The third commandment is not just said to uh, control speech. It's that nothing should be done that in any way... Um, is, uh, is opposed to that name and all that God represents. The name stands for all that God is. Uh, and Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 8 of chapter 4, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness, shown to... Now, note that the boldness of the apostles is in the context of an act of kindness. Because there's a lot of boldness today that is brash, that is uh, headstrong, that is arrogant, that's filled with pride. This is not the kind of boldness that is characteristic of the early church. The boldness of the early church is filled with compassion, empathy, it's reaching out to the needy and to the poor, and, and Peter is saying, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown, shown to a man who was lame and are now being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And this is beautiful. Peter the denier is now the Peter the proclaimer. And he is doing so with such clarity, with such boldness. It is in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Nazareth, driving home the humanity of the incarnate one, even as he's preaching the deity of Christ. And we, we kind of ended on verse 12 last time. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Probably the most radical truth that the gospel asserts today is the exclusive truth claim of Christ. And we mentioned that last week, and we gave some reasons why that really is wise, the exclusive truth claim of Christ. It is the most inclusive gospel and possesses an exclusive truth claim. There is an inclusivity that is radically different from all religions. And there is a radical exclusivity that is different from other religions. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, 
They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there, there wasn't much that they could say to refute the testimony. They warned them, don't speak of this uh, name anymore. Verse 17, to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Verse 18, then they called them in again, commanded them not to speak, not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then Peter replies, and we could take a whole lesson on verse 12 and a whole lesson on verse 19. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. I, I like that, putting the question back to them. Uh, again, this pipe of boldness is not a dogmatism. Uh, as for us, we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And we can't help but speak about this. Uh, Virginia and I have discussed this, this boldness theme and uh, we would acknowledge that there are people in our lives that our boldness needs to come through in terms of a consistency of behavior, not in speech. Uh, I have probably exhausted the opportunity for speech with some people I know very well. And I just need to show up. And it, it tends to speak volumes. And so I, I'm, I feel almost, you know, I pray that I'd be especially on good behavior, um, that I'd not precipitate something, but that I uh, just represent Christ. Um, now, I also, uh, I feel the great need, and I don't think I should feel this great need alone, just because, quote, you think I'm in this business. Uh, I don't think of myself as being in the business. I think of myself like these guys, ordinary men. Uh, I do think we need to articulate the faith. Uh, Luther said, a person who's afraid of the Christian assertions is not a Christian at all. And so I th there's a place to assert, there's a place to speak, to verbalize. Um, I think the apostles here are doing it, you know, they're walking this edge uh, in a beautiful way, as they should. Uh, verse 21, in further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So on their release... So we've got boldness coming in preaching. Here is the second part of that boldness. On verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. That's, that's an interesting phrase, back to their own people. Uh, it's interesting because it could be explored from so many different standpoints. Um, your own people might be just that comfort zone that you have with your ethnic group, with your particular race, with your particular denomination. I interpret it here in this early stage of the church as Peter and John are practicing life together with brothers and sisters in Christ. 
They went back to their own people, and it speaks of a kind of, well, first of all, Peter and John, it's never just Peter. It's a team, always a team. If you look, uh, if you scrutinize Acts, you see always people together, working as a team. And Peter seems to do all the talking here, but you know, it's interesting, Peter sort of is beginning the emergent church, John's going to finish it with the book of Revelation. In a way, these two individuals bookend what we have in terms of the first century report of the church uh, in a marvelous, powerful way. We feel that John wrote the book of Revelation uh, as the last book, maybe in the 90s, um, certainly late into the first century. They went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said. There's transparency in this fellowship of believers. We do need to share, we need to bring everybody in on it. A church that's transparent is, I think, is a wise church. In verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, it's interesting that that line and it's not appointed in my text as to which psalm that comes from, but it's the psalm we actually read in worship this morning, Psalm 146. And what's especially interesting, you know the literary term synecdoche, which means understanding simultaneously. It's a literary term that says that when a phrase is used, the whole context of the passage is meant. And the early church is great on, well, the, the New Testament is filled with this, that a line here, a phrase here is not proof texting. No, it's taking in the whole thing of what is being said in that context. And here, I remember this, this psalm because uh, Mark Knoll, a fairly well-known evangelical scholar, I remember him writing on this psalm when the British went to war in the for the uh, in Argentina, Auckland, Auckland's, um, and the passage right before this, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it is right in the center of the psalm. Oftentimes, the main theme of a psalm is in the center of the psalm, but right before that is, don't trust in princes. Don't trust in rulers. So you see, my point being that Psalm 146 is what is centering their thoughts as they come to prayer. And don't trust in rulers. Don't trust in these three generations of high priests or in Herod or Pilate, or, uh, but trust in the Lord. And then the second Psalm that is quoted is from, and you can all look at the, you know, the bottom of your passage, but I wonder if you would remember if I just said to you, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, if you would identify the psalm. It's psalm 2. And uh, the Psalter begins in a fascinating way in that Psalm 1 is so personal and we all know it, you know, uh, person who delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of living water. That, we all got that one, but Psalm 2 is a highly political 
and social psalm, that God is sovereign over the nations. And, uh, and the, the rulers, I mean, he laughs at the rulers. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. They're lining up, these apostles are lining up the Psalms with what's going on in their lives. That's a, I think that's almost like a Christian responsibility to line up the Psalms with what you are experiencing in life. You have to kind of know the Psalms in order to do that, and that's kind of a lifelong project. It is for me. I would like more Christians to join me in that endeavor of trying to line up the Psalms with what's going on in our lives. It, uh, it deeply enriches our prayers to do so. It is Jesus' prayer book. In verse 27, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your prayer, they did what your power and will had decided before should happen. Again, there's this juxtaposition of the free, willful, sinful decision-making of people and the sovereign providential will of God. And these two are held in tension. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand that should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. You and I may think of just how should we be praying? How should we ask the Lord to enable us to speak his word with great boldness? It's not brashness. It's not arrogance. It's not presumptuous. I love that verse in Peter that we are supposed to impress the unbeliever with our goodness. That speaks volumes. Verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after that, the place was shaken. And they spoke the word of God boldly. So boldness in preaching and prayer Great grace in terms of the kind of fellowship that they experience together. And now the second aspect of the great grace in verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Again, this solidarity. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerful at work within them all that there were no needy persons among them. I just wonder how it would work if our focus of proclamation and of our sharing, the idea of proclaiming being broad in terms of the nature of how that conversation and uh, dialogue goes, if it was not driven by a kind of resentfulness that we're losing culture, that somehow the Christendom world that we were used to is no longer the world that is there. 
And instead of being driven by a kind of fear uh, of trying to sort of reinstitute what we've lost, we feel what we've lost, we just proclaim the gospel and live the gospel. That we enjoy the gospel. That we're not uptight and angry with the culture that we feel is eroding away from us. But instead, as a church, we take it seriously to practice the gospel, to live the gospel. Our families live the gospel, even when it's not supported by the surrounding culture. Um, that the sociology has changed. The climate of living faithfully, yeah, may have become more difficult. Uh, the right to life practiced in the church. Um, uh, the kind of uh, rhetoric that uh, isn't a, a compelling kind of joy uh, rather than an angry kind of defensiveness. Uh, the early church was not encumbered with a heritage of culture uh, like we are. Uh, they knew they were a minority. They knew they were being marginalized. They knew that they didn't have control. Uh, and God's grace was so powerful at work in them that all that there were no needy persons among them. You imagine the impact of that. It's not a communism. I, I, I wish I didn't even have to say that because there's such a reaction to this. Like, uh, well, yeah, that's well and good for their time, but you know, we're in a completely different economic order. Um, We've got Social Security and Medicare, and we have things like that, you know. So, but I, I, every church I've served, I've encouraged people to give off the record, off the tax record. You should have some kind of giving where you're not thinking, I'm doing this just to uh, help my tax situation. Uh, there's an art to giving, and... Uh, I'd rather you fail in how you give than not learn the art of giving because you can only, it's only by practicing it that you learn how to do it, I think. Um, so from time to time, those who, how are we doing on time? Well, um, the last, and this, you know, we really should give more time to it, but you've got, I hate the chapter division here. It just doesn't work because you have Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. You've got this wonderful positive example. There, he's not constrained to do this by the pressure of the group. He just generously, and you know, Joseph is, Joseph is the person who introduces Saul, who became Paul, to the Jerusalem leaders, Christian leaders. Um, it is Barnabas uh, who's chosen to go with Paul. It's uh, Barnabas who holds out for John Mark against uh, Paul's uptightness. Um, it's... Uh, Barnabas is a wonderful figure. We have glimpses of him. Uh, and here he sells a field in Cyprus. You know, Levites couldn't own land, but there may have been different qualifications for that. 
in Palestine, but in Cyprus he could own land, and he did. And uh, he sells the field, brings the money, and where does he do? This is part of the art of giving. He puts it at the apostles' feet. He doesn't even hand it to them. And you and I both know that how something is given makes a huge difference. Uh, I have been the recipient of, uh, of gifts from, uh, from Christians that uh, I was reluctant to accept. I've also been uh, the recipient of gifts that uh, they made me almost feel like it was an honor to give it. Really interesting, um, the art of, of giving. Uh, when we had a townhouse, I'll use quickly so I illustrate concretely. Um, the, uh, the townhouse uh, market in, in Toronto when we were there was, uh, if you remember those days of 19% mortgage rates, uh, it was just astronomical. And uh, rent was going up. We felt we had to get into the market if we had any, if we were staying there at all. And uh, so we, we bought a townhouse for 70000 but we needed like 15000 more for our down payment. And uh, we let that be known uh, to my uncle my, on my wife's side. And uh, he offered 5000 uh, Family offered another 5000 And then Miss Softly, a secretary at the Bible college where I was teaching, had heard from my uncle that he was making this deal. He wanted the deal with interest. And Miss Softly contacted poor, poor by all of our standards, I feel, had worked very tirelessly for many years, did not want any interest. And, uh, you know, we paid her back first. Um, and we just marveled at her generosity. Uh, she just wanted to help. Uh, that's the kind of giving that I'm talking about. Uh, these are loans I'm talking about here. Um, the opposite of this is then quickly illustrated at length by Luke. <laughs> you know, he, Joseph, uh, Barnabas gets a short verse. Ananias and Sapphira get a whole story. And you know the story. Um, and the impact of Ananias, you know, he doesn't emulate Barnabas, he envies Barnabas. He envies Barnabas for what Barnabas is, how people are talking about Barnabas, uh, the son of encouragement. Um, he envies Barnabas and, uh, did I say envy? He envies Barnabas instead of emulating him. And he, it must not have been a lot of money that he was lying about. Because, you know, like here, real estate values are understood and known. He comes before the apostles. Again, he presents it at their feet. But he makes it seem like the whole thing is going to the church, to the people that are in need. And Peter confronts him, verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? 
and it was sold, was it the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. I mean, he could have just said, you know, here's half of the proceeds, um, you know, and then everything would have been fine. But he deceived. And we're told, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then some young men came forward, wrapped up the body because he fell dead. I got a story for you on that, but we don't have time for it. Um, uh, yeah, it's my drop dead story. Uh, the bottom line, verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about it, these events. A fear of God, not of man. It's a good way to live. Let's pray. Lord God, thanks for this time in your word. Help us to be a great church in the sense of this kind of boldness, this kind of grace, this kind of uh, fear. Uh, help us, Lord, to know how to be bold this week for the sake of the gospel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.